Welcome to another episode of Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am a former film major, current film podcaster, a current lover of food, and occasional sufferer of heartburn. And joining me as always is my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hi, Harry. It's me. Happy New Year. I'm Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and a Jew. And I also, I take acid reflux pills. Is that's like That's sort of like heartburn, right? So yeah, you're qualified to talk about this movie. Okay, cool. And I, I enjoy food. Um, I'm excited to talk about food today um, with our esteemed guest today, who's a writer and a chef based out of Portland, Oregon, who specializes in Ukrainian and Soviet food, modern Jewish food, and seasonal cooking. Her culinary background includes chefing, food styling, teaching, and food writing. And she was the founder and owner of Beetroot Market and Deli, a Pacific Northwest Jewish deli. She's a regular contributor to The Nosher. And along with Carrie Lawrenson, she's the co-host of the Food Friends podcast. Sonia Sanford, welcome to Jews on Film. Hi, nice to meet you both. Very exciting to have you here on our first episode of recording in the new year. Oh yeah, um, happy new year, everyone. Yeah. yeah, we're going to be talking about a film called Heartburn, like we kind of coordinately alluded to. Um, it's a Mike Nichols film from 1986, starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Uh, among others. But I, you know, I wanted to start out, sort of set the table as it were, and just kind of <laughs> ask you why you picked this film. I love Nora Ephron. Like Nora Ephron can do no wrong in my book. And of all the Nora Ephron movies, Heartburn is my number one. And I think it's one of the greatest food movies too, like low key food movies. You know, there's obviously overt food mo food movies, like Big Night is probably Big Night exactly and Tempo. what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Big Night okay. and Tempo Tempopo are like to me the the top tier tide. But Heartburn's like really high up there for me. And that's because Nora Ephron was this incredible foodie, or it's not the greatest term. She was a huge home cook, a lover of food, very knowledgeable. I actually met an editor who worked with her who said she had a habit of ordering for every single person at the table. Like they couldn't even get through the menu. She's like, no, I'm going to tell you what you're having. Oh, okay. I was like, I would love for Nora Efron to order for me at dinner, you know. Uh, obviously rest in peace and may her memory be a blessing. She's no longer with us, but right. she's been a huge inspiration to me. Nice. So I'm not familiar with the other two films. I kind I have to look them up. What were, what are those two films again? The other two. Oh, oh, the Tempopo and um, Big Night. So Big okay. Night is a Stanley Tucci film okay. with okay. Tony Shalhoub. And it has one of the greatest like food scenes in all of cinema, which happens. And this isn't like a spoiler of any kind, but it happens at the end of the film where an omelet is made. Ooh, like no okay. greater, like it's a, like a single shot. There's no cuts uh -huh. and they're just making this incredible omelet. And it's so beautiful. I and mean, you could cry. It's so beautiful. Right. <laughs> that that I, we're, we're going off the rails and turning this into a food podcast, which <laughs> I love. Let's do it, dude. Let's do that, it. But it, it's a film movie podcast because that scene is really like foundational to me and my right. love of both movies and food. Sure. And my parents showed that to me. I mean, this was a movie they saw years ago and they said, you have to watch it just for like the build up to that final scene, because mm -hmm. it's like the most perfect execution of just simple, delicious food on film. And for our spinoff podcast, maybe we'll start with that episode with the big night one because it's yeah. really, oh, it's so good. Big Night is so parents. good. It's just a beautiful film. And then Tempopo is uh, Japanese, right? I hope I'm correct. But anyway, it's uh, subtitled. <laughs> and, okay. and it's just bizarre and uh, 
like kind of absurdist and surreal. And there's okay. a very, also a memorable scene with eggs. And in this case, it's an egg yolk. And if you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about, but it's just a luscious food movie. It's really about food. So, you know, there's like, those to me are like the greatest food in cinema has never been better than those two films. Right. When I think of food movies, I'm thinking like Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It really like fetishized in a good way the, the making of nigiri sushi like the way that they brush it with the oil and they like press it and the, all the care that went into it that was uh and then also like chef which which that the favreau movie you know where he like for some somehow gets sofia vergara as like his like love interest and then he's making these cubano sandwiches and so not not super kosher but he is a jew and so you know i just wanted to kind of mention that one as kind of like yeah a, yeah those, those cubanos in that movie looked so good they and immediately did. It, it became immediately clear how not kosher they were between <laughs> you know like the cheese and the meats and you know the what pork of it do? all and what can you do but uh the other thing i wanted to to mention yeah. you spoke about this being sort of a very nor efrod movie and you know we didn't even mention this but this is you know she not only is the screenwriter for this movie but she adapted her own novel that she had written right. that she actually loosely based on her own life experience oh, and you have the book in front of you yeah. for oh, yeah, that's sweet. and I, it's it's so funny because i you know I'm, I'm definitely not a scholar on nora efron and i'm excited to learn more about you more about her from talking to you in this conversation but you know one of the other things you hear about nora efron in addition to the food is just the love of a beautiful kitchen which i guess is connected mm. to it and this movie has the sort of prototypical nora efron movie because it's the one that's literally based on the book she wrote about herself such a big part of this movie is really the evolution we see of the kitchen that they kind of find in their new space and then right, eventually right, turn right. it into just this huge grand space. So I felt like I was getting a great window into that world just yeah. while watching this movie. I mean, I love the book. I think the book is incredible, as good, if not, you know, better than the movie. And the movie, of course, is wonderful. That's why I picked it. But yeah, I think... You know, when you're talking about movies like Chef, people always bring up also like Ratatouille. Mm, I think there's yeah, these okay. I think there's these movies they that people think like chefs are gonna love more than all the other movies, right? But I think when I actually talk to other food professionals, they always end up mentioning movies like Heartburn, because there's something mm -hmm. like about how we really eat, how we really cook. Like, because right. if you're a professional cook of any kind, you know what it's like to be in a kitchen. It's not glamorous. It's like chef isn't like, it's, it's almost like going to work. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also it's like the John Favreau version, which is not to me totally like, sure. <laughs> you know, necessarily my version of working yeah. in a, in a kitchen. So yeah, but this is like the kitchen, like, and what, like the spaghetti carbonara in this movie, like you can't look at that and not want a bowl of carbonara even if, you know, you need to make it kosher or whatever. But, that, and that's the thing with Nora Ephron. She's very, very Jewish, but you would not know that from watching this movie, right. even though it's autobiographical. It's never mentioned. Meryl Streep yeah. plays the version of her and Jack Nicholson plays the version of her love interest. And also, didn't you just feel like Meryl Streep is transcendent in this? She was terrific. I not, I don't think I'd ever seen her with like, I mean, just like physically, I think her brown hair was like a little bit like of a reset for me. Cause I was like, oh, I'm used to seeing Meryl Streep as like a blonde with the glasses, like sort of later age Meryl Streep, but like a younger Meryl Streep, you know, Kramer versus Kramer was kind of just around this time too. And so like compare that performance with this performance, she just is like, it's a different energy, very New York energy. And uh, yeah, I think the hair and like the whole 
the the soundtrack of it all and the clothing. It's like it was a great performance. And I and just seeing her transformation over the film, the course of the film was like incredible. I wanted to ask you, Sonia, based on some things that you were just saying, talking about, you know, both Nora Ephron's you know, indulgent relationship with food that's so clearly manifest in this movie. And also, you know, her Jewishness, which like you mentioned, I looked into it a little bit and it was very clear that she was Jewish, but that was not something that she really ever wrote about or spoke about. You know, I found a couple of loose articles here and there where, you know, some things came out and a lot of people actually said her most Jewish text is Heartburn is the book that she wrote about herself, which like you're saying, didn't really make it into the movie. But I want to, you know, because this is an exercise we're doing here on Jews on Film, where we, we try to mine the Jewishness out of sources, you know, I want to get that conversation started by just talking about that relationship with food, that relationship with food as this, you know, creative exercise, as this bringing families together exercise. And these are all things that we're going to highlight throughout the movie because there are so many food scenes I want to talk about, oh, yeah. more food scenes than Jewish scenes for sure. So we will oh, definitely yeah. uh, have to pause there. But I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that before we really get into it once we start talking about the plot. Yeah, I mean, food is emotional and Jew I think it's really emotional for Jews. I'd also say for a lot of other cultures, but having run a Jewish deli, I can just tell you how emotional it is for right. Jews. I mean, I had literally customers who were crying when they ate certain dishes. And then you know, when I had a handwritten note telling me that I was a disappointment to all Jews everywhere because oh they didn't goodness. like because <laughs> they didn't like their sandwich. So emotional. you know, this is like it. it's emotional, it's heightened. And um sure. I think the way Nora Ephron weaves that, the, um, that like food is very connected to her emotional journey in this movie. Mm -hmm. And even in her relationship, this kitchen and it being built is like an emotional, it's like everything hinges on these things, on these meals and this place um, and her anxiety. And again, I don't think she was ever like, mm -hmm. although I would say in When Harry Met Sally, like that scene in Katz's is one of the most iconic sure. food scenes in film and also one of the most Jewish food scenes in film and Billy Crystal is so Jewish. But yeah, I don't think Nora Ephron was like, hey, I'm making a capital J Jewish movie, but mm -hmm. it's the way in which she just is. And so right. it's just there. And so Meryl Streep is embodying her. And so I think it comes out and it's not just like any cliche, like, oh yeah, she goes to therapy or other kind of New York Jew cliches. I think it's more just like these more, again, subtler you know, cultural things, emotional things. Definitely a lot of like Jewish coding in the film. Like I, I really did look at her dad's doorway and I didn't see a mezuzah, you know? So I'm, I'm keeping an eye out for that kind of stuff because it does show up in like the most unlikely places, like in Clueless, it shows up. Right. But, and so like in other movies, I just, I'm, I'm just keeping an eye out for like the most basic touches, like that kind of stuff. I didn't get that in this movie, but like her dad is coming back from Florida. Like we'll get into it, but like, you know, there's, there's, Definitely like hints, you know, we have like people with the last names Stein and Siegel or whatever. So a lot of coding in there, but nothing like you're saying explicitly. It just kind of is. It's there. Although there are some crab, there's some crab dishes towards the end. So there's, I, I like I said, I, I told you all before we started that I made note of every single dish yeah. in okay. the movie. Yeah. And um, cannot wait. There, there are a lot of not kosher dishes. I yeah. mean, but there's so many Jews who don't eat kosher. So right. it just felt oh, to me very... Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah totally. But then um, there's some Jewish dishes. There's like, we can get into it more, but there's two things where I'm like, aha, here we are, which is rice pudding yeah, um, yeah. as the this comfort, deep comfort food and chopped liver. There's a whole oh, chopped okay. liver moment. 
Okay. It was like subtle, but I was like, okay, like there's a couple dishes yeah, there. Yeah. I, I, I have one more that I kind of clocked and maybe this is just a little bit of New York appropriation, but a couple bagel lines here and there that I oh, uh, yeah. tried to, I tried to grasp <laughs> towards when they moved to DC, but we, we can get into That's all right. that. That's right. All right. So then what do you say? Do you want to get into it, Harry? Yeah, sure. Should I get okay. us started with the uh, IMDb summary? I think so. I don't even have to ask in our in our 2023 year, you know? You already yeah, know. I, I knew it was coming. It's a, it's a really fun one this week. I think it's maybe more of a tagline. There are longer ones, but I'm going to stick with this one and we'll get oh, into it. But let's see how bad it is. <laughs> I, I like this one. It oh, okay, reads, good, good, good. She's a magazine writer who gives up her career for love and family. He's a Playboy newspaper columnist who can't quite give up his old tricks. And if that combination doesn't give a relationship heartburn, nothing will. Oh, my God. That's pretty corny, but <laughs> I guess it works. You know, work the title in there. Yeah. Props yeah. to whoever wrote that one. I think it devalues the title, though. I think the title is so genius and deserves so much more credit than it's getting. It's not just a cute pun, you know, because this is like a really complicated love story. Mm -hmm. And it's like you're feeling it in your whole body. And mm -hmm. I think it's a I don't know. I really love the title. Yeah. So it's like it's both working on the food level, you're saying, and like addressing her like heart burning, just not feeling so good after what transpires. Yeah, right? a okay. the way a difficult, like volatile love creates heartburn. Ah, ah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. And 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 struggling with it, like it's not. There's no obvious answer in the movie. Yeah, you know, you're yeah, not. Yeah. You're you're obviously rooting for her to get away in some right. ways, but in some ways you recognize what she's coming back to, and you kind of right. feel that. I like the heartburn of it all. It's it's interesting because, you know, and I'll, I'll mention this here. I was doing a little bit of research and I was learning, you know, this is like we said, Nora Ephron was writing this based on her own relationship with the uh, journalist Carl Bernstein. And one really interesting thing I learned about specifically, I think this applied to the book or maybe this was only when it came to adapting it for the movie. But at some point in, in, the, con in the course of the divorce proceedings, I think Carl Bernstein retained the right to basically cut anything out of the movie that he didn't like that he had. He Interesting. Had, okay. Wow. In, in a way that really maps onto the movie itself, because obviously we, we don't think of him as having, you know, a good relationship with her. And right. I think there were a couple things that he insisted on in terms of his portrayal that he had to, or he as played by Jack Nicholson in the movie had to always look like a good father. You couldn't cast him as being, you know, bad to the children and he couldn't, you know, look in certain ways. And I think that that compromises a little bit of the nuance we get. I think from, you know, the Meryl Streep character, we really get that full heartburn you're talking about and that full right. range of experience. And it's a little bit cut out with Jack Nicholson, both in his performance and his character. And I, I honestly wasn't the biggest fan of that. And I hope there's no uh, Nicholson stands listening here who, who really loved it. I wanted to mention that because I think it colors a little bit of how we see the movie. And it's why it becomes so much about, you know, Meryl Streep, her character's movie. And it's really her emotional journey from the beginning to the end. Right. Yeah. And I didn't they, they changed his last name to Foreman. And I was texting you about it, Harry. I yes. think it's probably just maybe a reference to Milos Foreman, who plays our our sort of like foreigner. Yeah. Who says like the wrong stuff at the table all the time. Yes. He's married to Catherine Hare. So he's yeah. like a director yeah. who, who like did uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a bunch of other great films. Like I, and Man I, I think that's how yeah. they got. They ended up with the last name Foreman, because sure. as I soon mean, as I heard it, I was like, oh, Milos Foreman. And you even pointed out to me that Milos Foreman himself is in the movie. I, I didn't notice that. But, yeah. You know, the yeah, name yeah. Mark Foreman kind of triggered that, but this goes into what you're what you're 
you're referencing, Daniel, is because we were talking about it. And another thing that I that I heard, and I heard this secondhand from another podcast. So if anyone you know has has a correction or something, you know, feel free to call me out. But you know, one thing that I heard was that the the name was supposed to be Mark Feldman. I think for this oh, character. Okay. And you know, and again, Colonel Bernstein stepped in and said that he wanted it changed. And you know, this podcast that I was listening to, I wish I had the name, but maybe we can reference it in the show notes because sure. uh, it, it certainly guided a little bit of my thoughts on the movie. But you know, I think they they quoted that there's this conspiracy that maybe they changed that he requested the name change because Mark Feldman sounds like Mark Felt, who's obviously the famous you know deep throat you know actor oh, in, in, okay. in the famous Carl Bernstein story, and you know Got maybe it. he didn't want to kind of reference that. But what the other hosts suggested was it could be. De-Jewishing it a little bit, right? Mm. That the name Feldman, like say, Bernstein, yeah, is, is well, and a also very for Jack. Yeah, with Jack Nicholson playing it, you, it's like making him because he Jack Nicholson doesn't come across as Jewish at all. No, yeah. nope, right. And changing the name and casting an actor like Jack Nicholson, it's interesting for a book that, and you know this better than the rest of us, but that you know, as I've read, has some Jewishness in it. For them to take, you know, cast actors that aren't Jewish in the lead roles to, you know, de-Jewify the the last name and make it seem a little bit more, you know, from mm-hmm. Bernstein to Foreman, you know, by way of Feldman. It's just, uh, it, it's just an interesting, you know, frame for for the movie as we go into. Totally. I think also because it's like it is ultimately a movie about a relationship, which tends to then be sort of categorized as made more for women than for men. Mm, And I wonder if there's like that prejudice, like then, then it definitely can't be too Jewish of a movie because then you're limiting the perception would be that it's limiting the audience even further as like a woman writer. And I've, I've worked, I started out working in film and television. I still, I I write film as well. Like the amount of times one is told as a woman, something is too Jewish or too this or that, Mm -hmm. because it's already too female. And like, so I imagine that was of concern to whoever was producing it. I could be wrong, but it seems logical that that would have in 1986 been a consideration. And yeah. she wasn't yet a proven entity the way right. that she became later and, and Nora Ephron became later in her career. Right. Because this is like sort of before a lot of everyone's sort of big stuff. Like I think, you know, chronologically speaking, so this was in 86, you know, Nicholson was just coming off of like Terms of Endearment and uh, Pritzi's Honor and things like that. But then he went on to do like Witches of Eastwick, uh, Broadcast News, Batman, in the next few good men, like, you know, sort of on like the late eighties and early nineties. And then I think, you know, for Nora Ephron, this was like, she did cookie, which she wrote. And then right after that was Harry met Sally. So this is kind of, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, the film wasn't so well received, I think critically and, you know, at the box office and things like that, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Jewishness <laughs> of the film. Yeah. Um, so what do you say? Uh, we take a quick break. We come right back and then we'll get into it. We'll start diving into our plot of, of Harpern. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Sonia Sanford to talk about the film Harpern. Harry, would you like to get us started on the plot? Sure thing. So the movie opens up with a wedding sequence. There's this big wedding and we see our, our lead characters. As we mentioned, they are Rachel is played by Meryl Streep and uh, Mark is played by Jack Nicholson. And we see these these two people kind of making eyes at each other in the context of this wedding. Uh, Rachel asks her friend, her you know, another editor at the newspaper, you know, what they know about this guy, Mark, over there. And they say, it's Mark Foreman. He writes a column in Washington. Is he single? He's famous for it. 
Somehow they still make their way towards each other, start flirting. And, you know, at the end of it, they end up going uh, back together and they leave the wedding after some drinks. Mark invites her out and eventually they go back to uh, her place and they watch a movie. And, you know, at some point in the middle of the morning, I think it's like four in the morning, she comes and whips up a, uh, a pasta carbonara for him. And that's the first instance of food that we're going to get uh, in the movie. And he reacts very enthusiastically and says, you know, when we're married, this is what I want every day. And, you know, she they kind of have this conversation where she says she's never going to get married. And I kind of knew it was coming. But, you know, almost, you know, a couple scenes or a scene later, we, we get to their out eventual wedding. So from this first wedding in the movie, we finally get to them. She uh, at this wedding, she's Rachel is very hesitant. She doesn't know if she wants to go through with it. But ultimately, she is, you know, cooled off. She's uh, convinced to go through with it. And eventually we exit this first sequence with them happily married. Uh, you know, with with only their future in sight. I think working backwards, I just want to talk about the wedding. Um, you know, my Judar was like in full full force at the wedding. No broken glass, no mazatovs, no kippas, no chuppas. No, I think the vows were very. They seemed very like pretty Christian, right? Do you take this person? Do you take this person? You're um, talking about the their wedding, her and Mark's wedding, or the first wedding in the movie. I think hers and Mark's mean, wedding, right? Oh, oh they sorry. Said, no, that's what I'm asking. You're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. No, Rachel and Mark. Completely on Jewish. However, the yep. waiter, do you notice the waiters are talking about how to make chicken properly? The secret is wax paper. Wax if paper. If you butter the wax paper on both sides, then mm-hmm. add the chicken, chicken just as you would in normal casserole. Filet of course. Of filet, of course, yes, and not a trace of skin. Oh, no. Fat. Never. Never. Oh, like, yeah. there's like this yes. little yes. woven through cutting back <laughs> right, because right. part of this wedding scene is that um, Rachel Meryl Streep is is nervous to get married and so she's hiding out in one of the bedrooms and everyone's coming to visit her so there's a lot of like everyone just milling about or right, being right. bored in the in the reception area and these two cater waiters are like going on and on and how to make this perfect chicken uh-huh. I was like that is a very Jewish scene of heavy cream mm-hmm. and begin boiling. Cream and shallots. Cream and shallots. So simple so far. And okay. mm-hmm. it is done mm-hmm. in approximately 20 minutes. Right. And they're like, just like talking is... to each other, right? Not to a guest or whatever. They're just like exchanging notes, so to speak. Yeah. They're exchanging like cooking tips right. as they wait for the wedding to start. It's like a nice it's like a nice cutaway. It's almost like the the old Muppets, you know, like where like the main show is <laughs> yeah. happening and you just cut away to these other folks just kind of having, a, um, you know, a little banter. It, it did for me, like bring up, you know, since this is directed by Mike Nichols, I thought of Elaine May because we did we did previously with Esther Werdiger, we did uh, The Heartbreak Kid. And so in that movie, Charles Grodin and Jeannie Berlin, they get married at an indoor ceremony very similarly. But it's filled with like Jewish grandmas and lots of Yiddish and like some on the piano. And so I, I thought about this because we find out that this is her dad's apartment in, on the Upper West Side, one would presume. So you know, it's it's at this indoor ceremony, very low key, but we compare it with this very ornate like church, like with this nice chapel and whatever. So it's 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 an interesting, you know, um, contrast between the two before before we move on to this wedding scene, because I, I think I'm trying to I was also trying to look for the Jewishness. You know, a wedding scene is a oh, sure. you know, inherent, not inherently, but to a lot of people, a very religious pronounced ceremony. Sure. And especially because this is based on the marriage of Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein. You know, even slightly, you could imagine that they had at least in some ways a Jewish ceremony mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe it was more secular. But it definitely, you know, in the context of the conversation, what you were mentioning earlier, Sonia, right. about 
you know, you can't have a movie that's woman centered and invokes religion. It almost makes this wedding scene feel like neutered in a way that it, it's mm-hmm. so it's like consciously stripped back. And the whole movie, I think, is missing maybe that sense of identity to give, you know, to just flesh out the world a little bit more. It, like this this wedding was so generic. And I like that they slip in certain conversations about food. You know, the the other thing that I wanted to mention that I, I kind of clung to and this could just be my own ignorance, but. When they're exchanging their vows, and that's something that, you know, I, I don't know if is if that's an activity that's very common at Jewish weddings. But they do mention a line, you know, with this ring, I, I wed thee or something. And mm-hmm. again, maybe this is something that happens at, you know, Christian secular weddings that I'm not as familiar with. But it definitely invoked for me, you know, the concept of Zoo, which is when, you know, right. you're at a Jewish wedding and you say, you know, with this ring, you know, as the symbol for, you know, our connectedness and you exchange rings. And that's kind of the action under the altar. And possibly a big stretch that I'm reading into, you know, possibly mind a little bit from a book or from an experience that might have been a little bit more Jewish and maybe did go through with some of the procedurals. But I, I, I'm just trying to work that in there in a scene that, like I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, of this little rant, just felt a little bit like it felt like they wrote a Jewish scene, censored out all the Jewish lines and then played it out as is. I feel like it's subtle. It's like it's in her father's apartment. Right. The mo- the mother's coming in. The friends are coming in. Mm-hmm. There's like a very like everyone's in everyone's business. Everyone's very comfortable with the awkwardness of life. Right. And her like yeah. that. I feel like I didn't. Yes, I hear what you're saying. And yes, I think probably that's true. It could have been way more Jewish for two actual Jewish people getting married. Like the characters are inherently Jewish. At least even Rachel is Jewish, even if they're not saying it outright, she's obviously Jewish and there's no presence of that. But on the other hand, again, I felt like the spirit of the whole event was very Jewish. Sure. For sure. And it's interesting, like what you're saying, Harry, where like, and and also too, Sonia, what you were like talking about before the break, like about like shying away from anything that's very niche. I feel like now, you know, not to pat Hollywood on our backs too much, but like now everything is like super niche. And like we have very proud Jewish filmmakers and very proud, you know, queer filmmakers and black filmmakers and Chinese films and like everything that's like, you know, very specific so that like it's broad that like everyone can enjoy it. But like, if you know, you know, like there's that certain dish or there's that expression or the clothing or the culture or the, and like it, I, I, I hear, I, I sort of agree with what you're saying, Harry, like, and, and Sonia, like making it like a little bit more vanilla, make it more palatable to kind of, this is just a generic love story. And there's like some Jewish elements to it, but I don't want to like tease my rating too. But I was just thinking about that as you're talking about this wedding scene that, had a huge opportunity to be like, at least a glass, you know, just a little glass. Come on. I think that's so easy. Um, I wanted to ask you, Sonia, just about the book, because, you know, uh, I read that there are recipes in the book and we talked about this amazing pasta carbonara. So how do the recipes factor into the like narrative of this of the book? I was trying to remember because it's been a minute since I uh, read it. Yeah, here Oh, no, that's the Kreplach joke I just turned to. I thought, it, you know, there there are books where there are like actual recipes right. woven into um, the ends of chapters. And I think with this one, it was just more descriptions written into the food. Oh, yes, okay. it's actually it's actually written into the page like and I I earmarked it because I think I probably earmarked recipes and it was for a cheesecake recipe. And it literally says, like, it describes the dish and then it's like cream, two cups of sugar with two sticks of butter. Then oh, I do okay. enough 
And then it like, it's all just in the same paragraph that it's saying, like the recipe, like as part of the prose. And then after it says bake at 350 for two hours, stirring after the first hour, serve warm with sauce. And then the next sentence is, for the most part, Arthur Siegel's room (laughs) is remarkably content. So So I think, you know, and I believe, okay, I meant to um, double check this, but have you, are you aware of this whole like Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde? Jason Sudeikis um, salad dressing incident. So there's like this whole story Uh, with (laughs) there's this whole story with like, uh, please forgive me. I'm going to get none of the details right. But there's some drama around salad dressing that Olivia Wilde always it's Olivia Wilde, right? (laughs) Always makes. And while she was having, you know, an alleged affair with Harry Styles, which then was, you know, a conflict with her and her husband, there was something to do with the salad dressing. And then the salad dressing itself went viral. And I'm 99% 99% sure it's the salad dressing from Heartburn. Whoa. I did know that. So, yes, I remember yeah. reading that. that it's it from Heartburn salad dressing. Wow. It's from Heartburn. Yeah, wow. which by the yes. way is like the most standard salad dressing. Oh, is it like, just like oil and vinegar kind of? No, it? but it's, I mean, it's like a good vinaigrette. Oh, it's okay, like, okay. It, and it is, yes. and I'm, thank you, Nora Efron, for teaching so many people a basic, wonderful vinaigrette. But that's really what it is. But it went viral on like TikTok wow. and like on social media. And it's like, so that's how, that's how influential the recipes in this book are. You can't say that about many cookbooks, right. let alone novels. But I, I also, I, I would like to go back to the spaghetti carbonara please, if please, we could, because yes, yes. we, because that's an early scene. It's before the wedding, and I would say for a non-kosher dish, which carbonara, for those who don't know, is made with typically, you know, um, a pork product like pancetta or like you know whatever bacon, and then you make a sauce out of egg yolks and either pecorino or parmesan and it's very simple and it's very delicious and you can omit the you know the pancetta and the pork or whatever but and that's how i make it but typically it always has that element so it's not a kosher dish and i'm certainly thinking that it wasn't in the movie but the way she okay so there's a couple things to me that are very jewish about the scene Uh for a non-kosher dish um people who are great home cooks or like are cooks cooking a lot in movies, especially like back in the day were were like homemakers, you uh, know, or men or men. Like you didn't see a lot of like incredible women chefs who were also like full-time uh, imp- yeah. like novelists, journalists. I, she's sure. a journalist in the movie. Mm-hmm. She's a writer at a magazine. Like you don't so the fact that she's like a working woman, she's very fiercely independent, and she happens to be an amazing cook. And that she's so she's not cooking like as a homemaker to please him. It's like they've just had a love affair and like they're starving and she's cooking him one of the world's most comforting foods. And then she's serving it in this giant bowl instead of like plating it individually. (laughs) It's just like there's something so like romantic and beautiful about this shared bowl of pasta. I mean, so I think that again, not a Jewish food, but kind of a very Jewish food scene. If that, if you can, if you can allow me that, I mean, maybe it's a stretch, but that's how I see it. If you know this podcast, we welcome stretches of all sizes. (laughs) So it's not a, not a problem at all. Um, yeah, I, I literally had the question on my list here of like food as an expression for love, especially on a first date. Like you're making like usually like post post coitus people are having cigarettes, hanging out, having like a scotch or whatever. I've not seen a movie where people are eating pasta carbonara with like two forks, like bringing it over like and they're watching like a horror film. And she's just like, you know, 
It's just and it's, she's really eating. She's, she's not, really she's yeah. really eating. And it's yeah. beautiful. And I have to say, like when I was dating early in my 20s and like I would it was like people think cooking for you is like a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and it was almost like I wouldn't cook for people too soon because then it might seem like I was desperate because Ah, it was seen as such a hot, a huge gesture. And we care so much what people think when we're in our twenties, but like, that's what I'm saying. is so (laughs) radical about this scene is she's just has the confidence to be like, I'm cooking for you on a first date. I'm not going to be your like wife or homemaker, but I'm, do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's so something I, about it, and, and especially like a dish like that, the way you were describing it as just being so like, you know, and I don't want to, I'm going to use some words maybe that you didn't, but just so like rich and nurturing and just, it, it almost feels, and I said the word nurturing because it almost feels a little bit, you know, less intimate to me, more like, you know, mothering to a certain extent. Oh, okay. And yeah. that's something that, you know, we, we have that later on in the movie. I think at some point Mark gets mad and says, why are you treating me like you're my mother? But mm-hmm. it does feel like, you know, in that sense, in and just communicating the relationship of food, you know, that that sense of like a Jewish mother creating this like really just like rich, big, you know, dish and like this big bowl and just kind of like treating you to it in a certain way and and connecting in that in that manner. I, I don't think that's true for the relationship for food, you know, throughout the film and especially, you know, within them, but especially the way that he always re- Mark always receives the food so enthusiastically and so much like this, like treat, you know, sent down from on high. Like there is a little bit of a nurturing sense. To it. I think food is inherently nurturing, but the shared bowl makes it not motherly to me oh, okay. because if she's plating it like for each of them separately, that's motherly. A mother's not sitting in bed with you sharing a bowl of right. carbonara. Like to me, yeah. it was like very, but I see, but again, like that's why I wouldn't cook for someone too early in a relationship yeah. because yeah. it could be interpreted in a different way. Totally. So as we kind of like progress now that, um, <clears throat> Now that Rachel and Mark are married, they they buy this fixer upper house uh, in Washington, D.C. They pull up to it. Um, I think they first do an initial tour and it's kind of like falling apart in many ways. But then we cut to like a nice, funny montage of of them, you know, painting the walls. And we have we are introduced to our Hungarian contractor friend played by comedian Yakov Smirnov, uh, who doesn't have I forget. Was it he doesn't have pronouns or what was the thing? There was some gag about I, 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 I think in Hungarian language, they yeah. don't use pronouns. So yeah, he's right. just, he, he keeps misgendering everyone and right. just referring to things the wrong way. Right. And, you know, Jack Nicholson gets upset because he doesn't have a door to the kitchen. So he has to go around and. It's just that <clears throat> there's no door to the kitchen. The back door. Oh, the back door. Yes. <clears throat> it's true. You can get into the kitchen. Through the back door. This we know is a kitchen. But you can't get inside the house from in the kitchen! Now how the fuck did this happen? Mark, for God's sake. You know, there's some there's some bumpy uh issues along the road with the house itself and the and the uh updating of it. Um, you know, so as as we're kind of going, you know, through the house stuff, uh, you know, they're going out to a meal uh, with Mark and his like crew of friends in Washington D.C. And we're introduced to a few other couples, and those will be our couples that we'll kind of meet with, uh, you know, throughout the film. We have Catherine O'Hara in in a notable role, as well as uh, she's married to Milos Forman. Um, so we have Stalker Channing, 
and Richard Masur, who played Julian Arthur. So those are our couples. And, um, you know, it seems that like uh, Rachel seems like kind of out of place and she sort of ignored a little bit, uh, you know, because they're talking about politics and she just kind of feels a little bit odd. Um, uh, you know, later on, Rachel says that she's pregnant uh, and they they go out and they have pizza uh, or they, they, they have pizza at home and they start singing baby songs to each other, um, which is very cute. And, uh, you know, so then another food scene kind of like later on is um, they're having a barbecue with some friends that I just mentioned. And that's when she kind of goes into labor. And I thought one of the funny things is as she's like leaving to the hospital, she gives instructions to her fellow friend about how to turn over the brisket. Um, put the lamb on. No, put, put the, the lamb, lamb on lamb, for, lamb. Right, for right. 20 minutes. Right, right. She says it put lamb. it for 20 minutes. So right. I was like, that... amazing. She's yeah. cr- and also, also, all the food information is correct. Oh, in good. The I was going to ask about yeah. the accuracy of it all. And and then, uh, you know, Mazel Tov to her. She has her baby through sort of like a traumatic C-section. And, uh, you know, she's having a conversation with Mark. I don't remember exactly the conversation, but there is kind of a heartfelt conversation that the two of them have. And I wanted to pause here because we kind of covered a lot here and kind of get some thoughts on, on this mm-hmm. junk. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even I think at that outdoor meal, someone also, I think Catherine O'Hara brings arugula and she says, how did you get arugula in Washington? Oh, right. And just like that. there's... I mean, to us, it seems so like ubiquitous arugula. Right. And I at the, in the 80s, it wasn't. And just there's so much attention to food detail, um, which to me is Jewish detail. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. in this so, context with Nora Ephron. And I love the way that it's thrown in. I, I loved when Daniel was asking you about how it appears in the book. And you said it really is just part of the dialogue mm-hmm. and part of the conversation and the kind of the book. Like you showed us, you, you held up the book to the screen and it didn't even look like there's a paragraph break to right. you know go into something about food. It's just part of it. It's embedded into the fold. And that's like so much how the food operates in this movie to the point that I didn't notice it until we started this exercise of trying to point it out whenever it shows up. Because this is a movie that's not trying to teach you about food. It's not like the way you'd see in, you know, like an Adam McKay movie movie or a Wes Anderson movie where they just like throw the text on the screen and like mm-hmm. give you the play by play of how to make it. You right. know, this is just a movie that it just expects you to join in its world. It's a movie we take food seriously and you could get on board and pick up on the little things, the little touches we have, or, you know, you're just going to miss it. So this movie does that exactly like how you described the book. Yeah. it's But, but Yakov Smirnov, you were going to say something about him because to me that was sort of like, well, it's interesting that he always plays these very heavily accented immigrants. Yeah, I mean, you are Jewish. He, I mean, he is Jewish in real life, right? And he is really from Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, but you know, for those who are not aware, Yakov Smirnov was very big in the eighties and nineties, making sort of like Russian jokes, where like you know he'd compare Russia. Uh, I'm, I'm probably not going to do his jokes justice, but like the structure of his jokes were always like, I mean, his famous catchphrase is "What a country." Um, but he says in Russia, we only had two TV channels. Channel one was propaganda. Channel two consisted of KGB officer telling you turn back to channel one. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's pretty good. In America, you can always find a party in Soviet Russia. The party can always find you. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up, you know, right. you, you, you're, you know, my brother. So, you know, that our family comes from Ukraine right. and I feel like Yakov Smirnov was like very much appreciated right. and supported and celebrated in our home. I thought like, I mean, in general, like look at all the Jews in the movie, look right. at all the cameos. Sure. Like there's clearly this surrounding sort of like ensemble of, you know, of Jewishness. You know, now he resides in Branson, Missouri, where he has an 800 800- 
seat theater and like he has a residency there and you know congrats to him uh, but i you know i think he was a very um very notable 90s late 80s and early 90s comedian and he really leaned heavily on this sort of like foreigner bit that was his sort of act yeah yeah, we, we've been talking about him in this like foreigner humor, this immigrant humor. And I think it plays into exactly how we've isolated that, Daniel, in just previous episodes when we were talking about, you know, mm-hmm. the Jewish immigrant character. And, you know, one of the ways we mentioned that manifest, especially in early Jewish humor, was through that kind of language discrepancy, right, of, right, right. you know, miscon- like, you know, miscommunication and confusion. And it's almost it almost always renders the, you know, the immigrant character as the one who's not quite the smartest in the room, but the one who like gets what's going on and everyone else is just confused. You know, he's very in in this movie, he's very, you know, gleefully making all these mistakes. He doesn't seem to care that no one is really putting together what he's doing. She's a piece of cake. He's a piece of cake. It's, it's a piece of cake. You are Hungarian. No, you are Hungarian. Yes. Yes. Hungarians don't have pronouns. Apparently they don't have fucking doors either. She's very angry at me. He is very angry at you, yes. It's, you know, reclaiming some of that power of being someone with, you know, not the native language and just, you know, using your foreign language to kind of assert yourself. I think this movie does that really well. Like this, I would argue, is probably the most Jewish scene in the movie, at least, you know, visibly to to me having, you know, gone through these things. And I just... I love that the confusion also, you know, to tie it into some of the other things we're talking about also has to do with not just like a door placed in the wrong place, but specifically the kitchen door. And we see how upset, you know, Mark, who's been, you know, his love language to a certain extent has been through the food that he's received. And all of a sudden he's like, I can't even get to the kitchen. I mean, this is the biggest breakdown. The most emotional he gets in the whole movie is about how he can't get to the kitchen without going outside. And that's so disruptive (laughs) to him. So I just love that. That's really the source of, you know, so much agony. It's that it's that barrier to the food that he's been receiving. And that felt like it must have been true to life. Like not just <laughs> yeah. like, but that like emotionality about it felt Nora Ephron was drawing from something very real. Oh, totally. And it's interesting because Harry, what you were saying, like there's this delineation between, let's just say Yakov Smirnov's character is a Jewish, a Hungarian Jew, but like there's a difference between Rachel's Jewishness and this guy's Jewishness. And then sure. also between Rachel and like Mark's friends and her friends and some of that, like there's a very clear to me, but not so clear to maybe other people of like, these are the Jews and these are the fancy, like the Swedish woman will meet later Thelma. Like she's very much not Jewish and like tall and blonde and beautiful. And Rachel's, you know, whatever, she's different than that. And so I, I think, you know, this is just another example of kind of like the otherness that we always talk about. Um, but yeah, let's see. Pizza. I don't know. There's nothing. There's not a lot of fanciness about the pizza. It's just a very sort of basic, um, basic pizza to me. And but I just wanted to talk about like pizza or food rather as like celebration. You know, this is like a Mazel Tov moment. She finds out she's pregnant and, you know, just as like food in general as a way to sort of mark a celebration and to kind of pair those two together. I know within, within Judaism, there's a lot of like ritual around food, whether it's like Passover, dipping the parsley and having the matzah and all this kind of stuff. Like all the food in the movie is fun. Yeah. It's not like champagne and caviar at a, it's not pretty woman in that scene. You know, it's like I, just to go through some of the list highlights, sure. it's Chinese food out of the box. Right. It's pizza out of a box. It's lamb on a barbecue. It's in chicken with your bare hands. It's, it's rice pudding. It's chopped liver. It's pasta with clams. It's a very like fun, accessible 
delicious celebratory food throughout the whole thing. Right. And none of it seems like very pretentious, you know, like no. I, I love that about it. It's like, like you were saying, she does it all and is, and is a cook or and is a chef or. I don't know. What's is? It, would you say that she's it, a, cook. a cook? You're not a chef. Unless, a chef would only be doing it professionally, ah, okay, and she's good. not. Yeah, but she's. You know, I would just say she's like an accomplished cook or a great cook right. or yeah, yeah, avid cook. Totally. Um, just to sort of segue, you were talking about the chicken, right? So in our next scenes, uh, you know, they're summering now in Virginia, and they're relaxing, sitting on where the kids are i don't know but i think maybe they're i think it sounded like their the other couple's older kid was watching um the younger daughter who's now played by mamie gummer shout out to her who's now an accomplished actor of her own right uh who looks exactly like meryl streep so if you are listening go look her up um very cute as a 18 month old but um it's it's spitting image right now it's crazy um so they're relaxing in virginia and they're having a conversation i think they're making margaritas uh in this like yes. nice 80s blender which i appreciated um and you know she has this sort of chicken kind of sitting out and they're having a, another com beautiful conversation and i think mark is hungry so he just cracks off a, a, a chicken from the bone and starts to eat it and rachel kind of dresses him down mark for god's sake what it's not even lunch and you rip the leg off the chicken are you planning on photographing it? Oh, you don't even like dark meat. Well, I won't have any lunch, okay? Just um, subtract it from my share, okay? You know, this is not your mother's house where you do something like that. Everybody thinks it's cute. If it's not my mother's house, then why are you talking to me like I'm your kid? And then I think to diffuse the tension, they just do a cheers to marriage and friendship. And, uh, you know, that scene ends. But then, you know, they go, they go around with their group of, of other sort of uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, you know, young professionals. And uh, they have they go around and they talk about how they would describe themselves, which I thought was kind of nice. And Rachel's I think she says something like, you know, I'm a mother and I'm a writer and, and they all say fun stuff. Uh, and that's when we sort of meet uh, Thelma uh, and they as they walk by, I think someone is gossiping that they're aware that Thelma is having an affair with someone and you could sort of tell that Mark is a little on edge because that is who he's secretly having an affair with. Um, and uh, Rachel then goes to get her hair done at a salon and the hairdresser seems to know kind of like more about what's going on than she does. So they're kind of like teasing her hair out. This is another funny scene where they're like teasing her hair out in this sort of weird eighties way. And then she kind of leaves midway through and uh, you know, goes through his drawers and finds evidence of his sort of philandering and decides to confront him when he comes home from, I believe he went out to buy socks again. Always. So yeah, always buying socks because you never know where they go. Um, so yeah, I think um, I'll stop there unless you want me to keep going, but I think this is a good place to stop because I think after this is where they go, you know, to New York and I want to talk about the whole Kevin Spacey of it all and in a second, but <laughs> anything, anything about the chicken bones or, or sort of the discovery well, of the affair. Yeah. You know, the there to go back to that scene, it's two couples, they're summering somewhere at some lake, and there's like clearly a picnic, but no one started eating yet. Like it's about to be eaten, and there's a whole chicken there mm -hmm. sitting, and Jack Nichols is, starts eating it with his bare hands. Like he lunges into the chicken, and this horrifies Rachel, Meryl Streep's character, horrifies her. And so I think there's just like this 
this desecration of the food, Mm -hmm. the holiness between them. Right. Right. And it's like symbolic of his further, like just desecration of their relationship. Yeah. And it's shown through the food first. For sure. Yeah. It it reminds me of the way you were describing that first scene with that shared bowl together and how much, you know, it's not just the food preparation, but really the serving says so Mm -hmm. much about how they're communicating. And, you know, that's probably the moment they're at their closest in the whole movie, you know, together. And we see them sharing this bowl together and, you know, how how far removed they've come from that. It's not even separate plates at this point. It's he's not even letting it get to the table. You know, he just takes what he wants. And, you know, it's not such a stretch to see how this maps onto his own behavior outside of the the relationship. But I totally agree with you. I mean, this is such a desecration. And this is, you know, part of what Daniel in, in the summary you described was a string of smaller actions that kind of click together in that scene in the in the hair salon when she finally puts everything together. Right. It all it all kind of comes together. And she um, I loved, you know, I was very nostalgic for a lot of the things that I saw, like the huge computer, the hair, obviously, the Carly Simon song that we kind of had coming back and forth and in, in through the in through it. Uh, and uh, let's see. And doesn't she. So after she finds out mm-hmm. that he's um, cheating on her, is that when she has rice pudding or is that when she's at her father's apartment? So I, think, I can't recall. I feel like the rice pudding comes in when she's had her baby. I don't remember if it's two or one, but. Someone brings her rice pudding and then someone also brings her the paella, which are two rice dishes. Yes, it's after. But she has rice pudding twice in the movie. Oh, she does. Okay. her her Jewish friend. uh, Yeah. Richard Master plays Arthur and his wife, who's played by Stalker Channing, come to see Rachel in the hospital. She's just giving birth to their second child. The relationship's falling apart at this point. And they bring her rice pudding. And it's like it's like they know her better than her own husband. Like they've brought her what she actually needs in that moment after giving birth. Again, I think a very Jewish dish in a very Jewish moment like i'm gonna comfort you with rice pudding after you have a baby like i don't think the many people eat rice pudding i don't want to like claim that like jewish people are the only ones but it is like a historically very common jewish comfort food yeah i have memories so i'm i'm my dad is sephardic my mom's ashkenaz so we so we keep like kidney oat which is like for those who are not familiar you know you eat legumes and things rice on passover so i have very fond memories of eating rice pudding really only on passover with like rice and milk in like a Pyrex dish with like raisins and cinnamon in it. And so like that dish, you know, food is a very transcendent thing, but it can obviously trigger like a lot of memories. So whenever I, whenever I saw that, I was like thinking of, of Passover. Are there other oper- or other occasions that you traditionally eat rice pudding on or is it? Yeah. My mom used to make it for me all the time. Oh, it was like a comfort, f- like it was a, a regular food. thing. Like yeah, it was like a reg. Well, not like every, but it was like a a, tre- a regular treat. Right. Like in the world of treats, which are made, let's say four or five times a year, mm-hmm. it was one that was made four or five times Got a year. It. Okay, and it was certainly to comfort me. So it's like I just remember I think sitting in front of the TV or something, okay. you know, like getting to watch a movie and eating rice pudding with raisins and cinnamon. Yuli never told me about this before. I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> Yuli also said that we never watched Jewish movies, and I. I really beg to differ, oh, <laughs> but let's create some drama. <laughs> but I, but again, we had different experiences. Sure. I'm five years younger, sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, but we, 
anyway, we watched a lot. He who should not be named anymore, apparently, but we watched a lot of Woody Allen growing oh, up. Oh, got that's, it. Okay. That's the real. And we had Woody Allen books all over the house. Right. And when Yuli was on your show, I was like, I can't think of a more Jewish filmmaker than Woody Allen. And my parents were obsessed with him mm-hmm. to the point where I literally saw, and I'm not exaggerating, I saw Annie Hall at least 20 times between the ages of eight and 11. Whoa. Like I saw it so many times. So again, I was younger. Maybe it was different. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. It, it anyway, that's like, a digression. <laughs> but it, but it, I guess it just sounds like Yuli just cut that out of his brain. He didn't like he didn't, you know, all the Woody Allen stuff, which we've, we've addressed previously. But right. Perhaps, which is fair. Again, it's, it's fair to past. cut him out. of. Again, it's like Voldemort now, you know, like there's exactly. just certain people we don't talk sure. about anymore. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, but it's a truth of the past that he you know, him and Bruno, around. we don't talk about either of them. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> to, at least I got a laugh towards <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. get us back towards this film. Sure, I, I wanted sure. to just, you know, respond to just some of the rice pudding conversation, which unfortunately was not something that I've, I don't even know if I've ever had it. So it definitely isn't a part of my experience. But, you know, what it does make me think about is just the way that you eat it. And correct me if I'm wrong. I, I kind of did some Googling on the side, but out of a bowl with a spoon, right? That's that's how you eat this. this Naturally. Yeah. I mean, it could be a, like a fork or what, what do you mean? As sure. opposed to what? A, a fork and knife, you know, cutting oh, something up. Oh, I, oh. Again, oh, speaking yeah. as someone who's not so familiar, I'm just I'm creating this contrast between certain foods that, you know, sure. I the way I think of comfort foods specifically, the way mm-hmm. we're describing in this episode. Yeah. And, and I love the digression this episode has taken to become just really like a food analysis. I mean, I know that's what you do, Sonia. So, you know, I love I love that you steered us in this direction. <laughs> but I just think of those foods, those sort of comfort foods as the kind of thing that you like, you know, you're not sitting at the table, you're on the couch and you have, you know, a spoon, a bowl and, you know, whatever. We Again, I'm bringing this back to that first conversation that we had about the carbonara, the way yeah. that that's eaten in that shared bowl together. Like, this is something I wish I did the first time I watched this movie, but now I need to go back and just chronicling, you know, which kind of food is served when and, and what their relationship with food is and when when it's about them being close and when it's about them being far. I mean, again, the farthest thing from eating something out of, you know, a bowl, out of a, out of a bowl with a spoon is, you know, picking at it with your fingers, is eating some like, you know, some of the lamb chops that they have sitting across the table, which is also a little bit more of like a finger food. Like there's just... Right. I, I wish I had this more fleshed out and I'm kind of challenging, you know, our listener or just anyone revisiting this movie to really kind of chronicle that. But I do think that there's uh, there's clearly something going on. And I'm just I'm I'm doubling down on what you're saying about this really being a scene of her finding comfort in her food. You know, this very sort of rich Jewish food that she's, you know, that she needs at this lowest moment. I think yeah. I think the last thing I'll say about rice pudding is a quick shout out to Rice to Riches, which is in New York. I remember that place. Um and and I it was for those who are not familiar, I believe it's in like the uh, like West Village area where they used to have like these like t- plastic bowls with like funky spoons, and you could get different types of rice pudding. That's all they served yes. there. So good, um, and I remember it a lot. So I just have again fond memories about rice pudding. What can I say? <laughs> you know, um, I do have a rice pudding recipe, by the way. Oh, if anyone, I think we need should to be looking for one. I think so. Okay. I'm happy to share that. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think it should Please. go like just kind of like Harper where it's like our episode description and then the recipe and then just the rest of the description. <laughs> they also discuss the recipe for rice pudding, which is and right. the whole thing out. <laughs> totally. Let's really do that. Yeah. Let me let me get us back to to Mark and his philandering. You know, I think um he does admit to it. So she takes her first sort of runaway trip. Uh she takes her kid to uh, her dad's place. At this point it's just one kid and um she goes to her dad's place who 
her her dad is not there initially, so she's kind of she's left. By the time she comes to New York City, I think she's relieved to not be there anymore. But then I think reality sets in, and she has a moment of like. You know, she talks to her dad's housekeeper who becomes her nanny and she says, you know, uh, you know, did he call? Did he call? Did he call? And she's constantly checking in with uh, the nanny who's her name is Della. Her plate, Anna Maria uh, Horsford. Um, and, you know, constantly just making sure calling from the payphone while she's going to a job interview. I think she's meeting up with Jeff Daniels character, her former editor, trying to get her job back. You know, and uh, her dad eventually comes back and gives her a speech about not being able to change him and not being able to, like, change his ways of being this sort of non-monogamous kind of person. And then the dad's kind of off, right? He's going to do his own thing. And so she, so he's not really there for her at that moment. Uh, so she decides, you know, she's going to – she goes to a group therapy session with her therapist who's kind of a recurring character, also potentially a Jewish character. We don't know, but uh, – uh, she's riding the subway and she sees a robber played by Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey then follows her to the therapy group because he's seen her wedding ring on the subway. Uh, he entire, he proceeds to rob the entire therapy group. And uh, eventually, as she's coming back from her therapy group, Mark is there and he brings her back to D.C. He brings her back to D.C. and promises to be loyal to Rachel once again. First of all, how many great actors are in this movie? Like, it always surprises me when I rewatch it, just how many like wonderful actors are in it. But, yeah, I just I I don't have like. This to me is not like the central like Jewish part or food part of the movie, right? It's the sort of the dramatic sequence. Oh, this is Spacey's first role, by the way. Just this is a yeah. I think it's interesting that the dad, you know, I think about like how her mom is not alive, right? And like traditionally one would, you know, learn about cooking maybe from the mom, one would presume. And the dad, like, you know, the mom's not in the picture. We don't really know how she became such an amazing cook. And like... I felt for her character when like you want your dad to be the one who comforts you and like, but he's just like doing his own thing. I I felt bummed in that moment that, you know, he wasn't able to be there for her other than to just give her like, life is hard. Get get over. He says to her, oh, daddy, what am I going to do? There's nothing you can do. You want monogamy. Marry a swan. Oh, no. You get some sleep. Are swans notoriously monogamous? I guess so. Okay. It must be. I yeah. think he also suggests to her, he gives this whole lesson about, or he tells the story about someone else who was in the middle of a divorce and eventually figured out a way to, you know, give up their children. Like they, there was some punchline to a joke where it was, right. you know, you take the children. And she says, are you telling me to give up my children? She's like, yeah, maybe one of them at first. And then the oh, other God. one six months later. And she's like justifiably horrified at it just, especially coming from your father, you know, who you're looking to for that relationship for him to come in and say, better to cut yourself off from the children. It's, it's clearly not what she's looking for in that scene. Right. Yeah. It's uh, unfortunate. But, you know, now that she's back in D.C., I feel like a little while later, she's again pregnant. I think they come back and they have this like passionate scene. Um, We have this lovemaking scene. I don't remember if there was a food, Sonia, as the food tracker here. Do you remember if there was another post? Coitus post? Well, there was 
another food? There was like a pasta with clam sauce at some point when she goes back to D.C. She's cooking for him ah, at dinner, right? Okay. Yes. So, yeah. And, and just because I, I think this, se- this sequence is kind of critical for the movie because, yeah. you know, they, she has this divorce. She makes this clean break. And you can tell she's kind of hoping that he's going to call back. She calls home and she, you know, tells her housekeeper like. Hi, Della. It's Rachel. Were there any calls from my husband? Well, if my husband calls me, tell him that I'm just, uh, no, 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 don't tell him that. Just tell him that I'll be home soon. Yeah, don't be too specific about it. Just say soon. And then she talks to her daughter on the phone to Annie and she says, you know, hang up, hang up. Like, daddy's probably going to be calling right now. Hang up. Like, you you can't steal the line. Oh, right. There's this clear sense of... Of like desperation. And I think this goes to, you know, the conversation that we we had mentioned, you know, off mic before, Daniel, just about the 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 cycles and just sort of breaking out of cycles and then her inability to, you know, for at least the, the time being to kind of grow and move past it. Because we've gotten to this point in the film where she's made this triumphant break. She she finally discovered and confronts Mark about the infidelity and she immediately picks up and leaves and she goes and she gets her old job back and you think she's getting back out there and all of a sudden you can tell that she's she's clinging towards this past and that's why like you were saying when they eventually do come they run into each other you know somewhere in the city and i don't think it's explained kind of when or how mark got there but they just kind of find each other they almost immediately get back together and that's when we have more food scenes and they're calibrated a little bit differently you know that the clam with uh the the clam sauce that we were talking about, that pasta scene, is in the context of, I think we see Rachel on the phone afterwards and she's talking about, you know, she's talking to one of her friends, I think, about, you know, him being back. And she says, I made chicken stuffed with lemon and Mark said, this is delicious. I made uh, linguine with clam sauce. And Mark said, it's the best I've ever eaten. And I made pork chops with mustard and cream. Mark said, I never want my pork chops cooked any other way. You kind of see the enthusiasm that he's giving off, but all of a sudden from her, it, she, I think the way that she was telling it over to me felt a little bit more passive and a little bit more, you know, he, he told me all this. It's like all of a sudden she doesn't believe it. She was so flattered in that first scene on their first right, date when right. he, you know, articulated just how good her food was. Or that, or that it's not, it's not enough just that he likes the food. Like right. it's not enough to hold them together. Like this thing that kind of brought them together no longer keeps them together. Like they're literally back at the table and it's like two strangers right, at a table. Right. Like, exactly. And it's yeah. separate. They're obviously not eating out of a shared bowl. You know, they're, they're yeah. on opposite sides and they're really like you could see the, the food isn't celebrated. It's really just listed in that scene. Right. Interesting. Good, good read. Love it. Um, you know, as we as we kind of get back to the uh, to the plot of it all. So she has her second kid and then she she spreads a rumor that Thelma has the clap, I believe. Uh, and she she wants to spread that rumor. She's she's shopping with her friend played by Catherine O'Hara. Uh, and she she decides that this is what she wants to do. Um, and then I think it comes up. But, you know, she gets her ring back from New York City. I think this is maybe presumably a little while later, she takes it to the jeweler to kind of get her ring adjusted. And she discovers that Mark has purchased a necklace for Thelma, who Mark is still seeing. So I think maybe at that point, that is when sort of the STD plan is hatched. Um, And then we have this sort of like final, our last supper, as it were, uh, with all their friends. And they're talking about keeping secrets from your partner. And, you know, this partner, she was gay and she was still married. And, and, uh, 
you know, this one and they were divorced and da, 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 da. And did you hear these people? And Rachel is all the while, you know, she has traveled. She, we see her making a key lime pie earlier and now she's carrying the key lime pie in the car. And then, you know, she leaves in the middle of the meal to go get the key lime pie to take it out. We're sort of setting up this gag or final, you know, moment. So confrontation. Rachel has a really, really great sort of final monologue to her group of friends about, you know, secrets and, and, and being honest and things like that. So then she takes the pie and she smashes Mark uh, with the pie in his face and she just walks out. She takes the car keys. I think maybe she leaves and then she comes back and takes the car keys and then she bounces. And, uh, you know, and then I think our final, final scene is we see. Uh, Rachel with her two kids boarding a plane and they sing a very cute itsy bitsy spider song. And uh, that's sort of when our film ends. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, sort of a lot of as as you as you had both pointed out, you know, throughout the film, a lot of the pivotal scenes take place around meals and gatherings. And, you know, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think I like what I was saying. It's a food movie, but it's not a food right. movie. It's like the way that like it's it's uh, their interactions with food reflect their emotional states and their quality of their relationship. And to throw a pie in someone's face, like as your final goodbye is quite a statement. Right. I mean, to, again, this desecration of who she lovingly makes this pie. Right. The recipe is in the book. Uh -huh. um, I love key lime pie, by the way, it's probably my favorite pie. Okay. And she, you know, it's just like a great dish. And then she just is like the final straw of the relationships. Like not only can this no longer, hold us together no longer brings us joy i i can't even like bear it like i have to defile the thing i love most because yep. i love you the most and it's not working and right. it's like that the love story is told through the food which is why i keep bringing it up not just because i'm like oh you know obviously that's what i'm interested i do this for a living i talk about food i love food but that it's like it's a character in yeah. this movie. Right. If, if food in the beginning of the movie is this vehicle for emotional connection, I mean, the only way to disconnect from that is to desecrate it. It's to use the food not to share in the taste and the flavor, but to slam it in his face. I mean, that's her final right. act of goodbye. And you get the sense, you know, she's getting on a plane at the end. This isn't going to be like the first time she walked away. Like she really she broke the cycle. She's out of it. And she walks away like a very proud single woman at this point whereas before i think she was much more skittish and a little nervous she's like power mom with the like the bjorn on and holding the other holding the hand of her daughter with the two backpacks and she's just like walking up and she's just very confidently kind of you know on the plane owning it singing um you know singing with her daughter uh yeah and i thought uh I, I, it was a very interesting, I, I feel like the editing was that they were cutting between the two scenes. Maybe I'm wrong of like, she's getting on the plane and we see Mark maybe just like, I remember vividly like that she smushes the thing in his face, but then we also just see him kind of like recovering from it all, like wiping the, the key lime pie from his face, like to sort of add insult to the injury and kind of really double down on that moment. But yeah. So the movie, like you said, ends with, you know, her and her daughter singing the Itsy Bitsy Spider. And then it, it actually goes beyond that because then we hear, you know, a pop version. And, and remind me who the singer is there. I think it's Carly Simon. I, I Yeah, I think so. So and then we hear this Carly Simon almost remix of Itsy Bitsy Spider. I mean, they, they commissioned a song. It clearly is this big triumphant final moment. And what this movie did for me was it totally re 
it just it it made me rethink how I I understood that song Itsy Bitsy Spider because and I'm I'm gonna go deep now we're going in, we're doing a, a little deep dive into Itsy Bitsy Spider but you know when they're going through the song and they sing it multiple times it's you know the Itsy Bitsy Spider ran up the water spout down came the rain and washed the spider out out came the sun and dr- out came the sun and dried up all the rain and the Itsy Bitsy Spider ran up the spout again. That's the nursery rhyme. But when you mm. sing it in a loop and you kind of visualize what the story is, it's this spider climbing up, you know, this this gutter, right? This spout getting washed out, trying again, getting washed out. And they sing it multiple times through. So it it felt all of a sudden very like Sisyphusian to me, you know, in, in mm, that myth yeah. of him sort of pushing the rock up the mountain and, right. you know, mapped onto this story. And this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, the sort of cyclical nature of, you know, we see kind of these two episodes of her getting up and leaving and, and discovering the infidelity. And there's something so cyclical about the way that she is, you know, and she has this analog for Nora Ephron is kind of trapped in this marriage and she's stuck and she, you know, it, it's killing her while she's in it, but then she leaves it and she can't be without it. And she's kind of doomed to repeat herself. So this, this triumphant moment where she gets on the plane and leaves, you know, it's, it's the spider getting up to the top of the spout and leaving. And there's this real triumphant moment here. And I just thought that was a really cool use of the song that I totally think is alluding there. And I have some spiritual kind of cleansing reads of this a little bit of Jewishness here you know getting washed down by the spout is like getting you know immersed in water we can think of you know the Jewish that there's concepts of this in Christianity as well but that Jewish concept of kind of immersion in water as as rebirth and coming out the other side and there's just and again fully in stretched territory here I mean it's the end of the movie this is what I've been I've been waiting for right you get the sense that that's her story, that she's been suffering through all of this kind of repeatedly. And she's finally had this this rebirth. I mean, she she's welcoming a new child. So she's there's this birth that ends the movie. Right. The movie starts with a wedding, ends with a birth because she's this, you know, rebirth alone away from there. This kind of spiritual awakening and, you know, whatever to end. Like, I want to end it poetically, but she's she's the spider crawling up the spout basically right. and getting out. So. I know, I know there's a lot there. You could buy it. You might ignore it. But uh, just, I just I had to get that in there. I love that read. Yeah, I'll buy that. I, I feel like that was I, I got that read as well. I was going to um, I was going to point out the song because I feel like they do sing it earlier in the film as well. And she does this little cute little thing with her uh, daughter. Um, and I feel like, yeah, the interactions with her daughter, because it really is like a mother and daughter, like you could tell it, I could see that Meryl Streep was kind of improvising a lot of that stuff too, where like she was like pulling the glasses out of her pocket and like doing all these little gags and she was totally on board with it. Um, Yeah. But how about we take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five stars of David in terms of its content, its themes and its cast and crew. And then I want to hear all about the food friends podcast. Does that sound good? Sounds great. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Sonia Sanford to finally give our ratings of the film Heartburn. Um, so, Harry, why don't you kick it off? Tell us a little bit about your feelings about the, this film. Sure. So we spoke a little bit about the cast and crew, the kind of people in front of the camera, behind the camera, and how much Jewishness there's there. And what's interesting is, you know, we, we did mention that Nora Ephron, who wrote the screenplay, wrote the book that this is based on, is Jewish. You know, whether or not that was a huge part of her experience, her persona, you know, it might not have been so prevalent, but that is common knowledge that she was Jewish. And like we said, it, it does get some play in the book that this is based on, even if it doesn't in the actual movie. You know, we know uh, that 
a lot of the supporting characters and a lot of the supporting actors that play these characters, that there's a clear Jewishness to it. There's a, you know, New York Jewishness to this movie in the way that we've articulated in, in other similar movies. But then at the center of the frame, we get, you know, these two actors in Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep who are not Jewish and are not really playing to that Jewishness too much. You know, I think there's a little bit more in Rachel than there is right. um, in in uh, in Mark's character, who's based on, again, who's based on, and I didn't even mention this, you know, Nora Ephron and, and Carl Bernstein, two, you know, notably Jewish people. So there's something interesting this movie's doing with its Jewishness. And I don't think there's much new to add that we haven't covered in the beginning where it almost feels like it's a movie that's stripped of its Jewishness, where the Jewishness, especially through the language of fruit, is really fighting to break through. But it's not so obvious in at least the casting decisions, you know, and who to put in front of, you know, what could have been a very Jewish movie if they had just leaned into it. So I, I think the cast and crew has this strange position where not only is it not so Jewish, at least in the terms of the lead actors, but it's like going out of its way to not be so Jewish, which uh, might not earn this movie so many points in terms of its Jewishness. But I'll open the conversation on the food a little bit because I definitely want to hear your thoughts, you know, Sonia, you know, a lot of what we've said earlier. But I'll just I'll I'll, t I'll I'll cue you up by just saying I do think that there is so much Jewishness through the food. Everything that you've been saying before, everything about how that the food is used as a love language. You know, we spoke about this. It reminds me of the conversation we had when we covered Mr. Saturday Night, the Billy Crystal movie, where that movie. From its oh, opening, right, you know, right, for, yeah. for those who don't remember, from its opening sequence, you know, it, it really, the camera just pans over food while we see this, you know, family together. And I remember watching that movie and seeing all, you know, in that case, the more recognizably Jewish food there, you know, a lot of like the briskets and the kugels and the things that you think of in a Jewish home. And just, it's clear that in, in you know, sort of deep, rich cultural histories, you know, in people's food is so important as this connecting agent. And this movie, you know, I, I didn't catch all of it on my first watch, but in the context of our conversation, have been fully convinced of the way that this uses food and the way it uses food, I would say, uh, is, is pretty Jewish. So I uh, I want to hear, you know, I'll, I'll throw it to you, Sonia, so that you can hopefully expand on that and just share your thoughts also on, you know, the Jewishness of the content themes, cast and crew, all the above of the movie. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like these are always like tricky questions. It's a Jewish writer to me, that is a Jewish film on some mm -hmm. level, for sure. even if it's not about, right? Like, because the writer is writing what they know. And this particular writer is actually literally writing what yeah. she knows because it's based right. on her own right. life. So, but no, it's not, um, you know, it's not at the forefront of the film. And in fact, if you showed it to like 100 random people, I don't know that anyone would say this is Jewish at all. You know, if we they weren't looking at it through this lens. So I think it's like you gave me the opportunity to see the Jewishness in this film beyond just knowing that Nora Ephron is Jewish. Right. Um, I guess that's my take on it. But I'm torn about how like you know, how do, how do we get to stretch that? And how do we, but as, but as a Jewish person watching it, then I get to find my Jewishness in it and connect to my, and like, even what you were saying about the itsy bitsy spider and like how that relates to, you know, stories in the Torah or mikvah or, and then how, again, the food relates to my own cultural and emotional relationship to it. So yeah, I, it was fun to discover that. Yes. Yeah. It's worth pointing out also that Mike Nichols is Jewish. He was born Mikhail Igor Pachowski. Um, right. So there's that element too. I think also, you know, having a Jewish writer and having a Jewish director and some supporting Jewish castmates for sure earned some s fraction of a st stars to me. I'm not going to tip my hat just yet, but um, just to add on a little bit, you know, there are some Jewish elements to the story. 
only in a seagull here or in a Rosenthal there, like that kind of thing, you know, I think from a content perspective, there's not a lot. Um, the, the food, certainly there are Jewish foods, you know, got to give points for rice pudding, as we, as we mentioned, got I love that. Um, therapy, that kind of thing could be, you know, like a pretty Jewish thing, but the, thematically kind of echoing a lot of what everyone else has already said, you know, nothing explicit, but if you put on your Jewish glasses, I think you'll find some things in there. But it's time to talk Turkey. Let's talk numbers. Uh, Harry, do you want to get us started? Where are you at? One to five stars with David. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with the idea that someone watching this without our lens probably doesn't see it as recognizably Jewish. So that's that's already going to mean that it might not be so Jewish. I think the ways that it's Jewish are thematically, right? It's not in the content for sure, but it's thematically in the way that I think how you were describing, Sonia, where you can watch this movie's relationship with its own culture, with food, with, you know, cyclical rebirth, which I think we've spoken about a little bit. And pull a lot of Jewishness from there. You know, I think you can probably pull a lot of experiences from there. And that's why it's hard for me to give it, you know, even above two Jewish stars. But some movies are bereft of all of that kind of thematic resonance. And some of them don't necessarily give you so much opportunity to pull on the cultural richness there. And I know I just used a, a couple of pretentious words there. So apologies for that. But, hey, man. you know, with... With, all good. With all, Columbia, I, know, I, know I mean, come pod. on, man. No, <laughs> I'm that. kidding. I'm kidding. Um, with all that being said, I think when it comes to talking numbers, you know, I don't think it would be fair to give it such a high score because it's not so explicitly Jewish. I still want to give it a one and a half, you know, which oh, okay. might sound low. But for me, I feel like I'm giving it a little bit of credit because I think that the food stuff. I mean, it's, it's so critical to my Jewish experience. I, I right. love food. And, you know, despite some of the limitations that we might have as, uh, you know, as Jews in terms of the, the kosher food, that if, if that's your Jew who eats that way, if that's what you're willing to eat, you know, I, I just feel such a strong, connected relationship with food and love a movie that explored that. So that gets it some bonus from me. But I, I think I'm going to go 1.5. And I guess okay. I'll hear from the two of you whether that was too high or too low based on what you give. But Sonia, what, what were you thinking in terms of a number? I'm... Like and and this is strictly on the Jewishness, not, not the, the quality of the film. Yes. Exactly, that, that could um, be a five. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm with you. I think it's probably a one point five, okay. maybe a two. I mean, actually, I'll I lean two okay. because the supporting cast, the writer, the director, the overall themes, the New York City of it all, yeah. the. The frizzy hair. Maybe I'm even going higher. I maybe I'm gonna say two point five. Okay. Great. Yeah. You know, I I uh, I'm kind of ballpark. I, I I'm thinking, you know, around the same area. I think for sure, director, writer, points awarded. Like I said, rice pudding. But I would say points deducted for for our main cast not being Jewish. I think that's and also no broken glass at the wedding. Come on, <laughs> no mezuzahs. Like there's a bunch of missed opportunities. Always so no points award. Always nitpicking. I mean, you're the guy who nitpicked the Hanukkah melody from Licorice Pizza. So <laughs> I was to be just fair, if you're, I was just because if you're going to go for it, I'd appreciate it if you got okay. it right. But. You know, the little details. Still sticking to it, huh, Harry? <laughs> Just admit you're wrong. The Heim sisters are good. Anyway. No, well, they, they can be good also. But yeah, that's true. Um, I, I digress. I, I feel like, um, yeah, I'm probably going to go like two stars, I think, you know. Right in the middle. It's, yeah. I, I just, um, I think the cast and the crew who are Jewish add to it. And, you know, nothing about the plot is Jewish. There's elements of it. And. Yeah, so that's where I'll, I'll sit. Um, 
But, you know, Sonia, thank you so much for coming here to talk about uh, Heartburn with us. Um, I'm really glad that I got to watch this movie. I welcome, you know, with each new guest and each new movie that I discover, and we get to explore, you know, as, as Jewish critics or whatever we are doing podcasts here, I, it's, it's, a, it's a cool opportunity to check things out. Um, and I wanted to hear a little bit about your new podcast, Food Friends. Yeah. So my friend Carrie Lawrence and I were both personal chefs in Los Angeles working in Hollywood. That's where we met about 15 years ago. And we talk about food all the time. And so we started podcasts and we're no longer working as professional chefs. I work in food, but mostly as a food writer now, but we love to share our knowledge. And so we created a podcast for avid home cooks or for people interested in food. You don't have to even know how to cook, but we're talking as two enthusiasts, very Nor Efron-esque, you know, um, really accessible and just taking deep dives into all our favorite dishes and recipes. And, you know, I've learned so much from Carrie and she, you know, says she's learned from me. So we're just sharing all the things we've learned from each other now. And yeah, we're, we took a little bit of a hiatus over the holidays, but we have a new episode coming out in a few weeks. Very exciting. And if there's a is there one particular episode you want? I know it's like children, you can't like pick your favorites, but if there's like a food <laughs> episode. Well, if there's one that relates to us, it's that we had Seth Rogen on for our Thanksgiving episode and you can hear all about, then it's a very Jewish episode because his wife is on it too. And her name is um, Lauren Miller Rogen and they're both Jewish and they both have very different relationships to Thanksgiving. And so, and also there's like a sort of Pacific Northwest versus the rest of the country kind of battle. Okay. So that's a highlight nice. um, cool. for your audience. For sure. Yeah. I'm very, I was, I listened to that one. I was very interested in like the slow cooker match mac and cheese so oh I'm, yeah i'm very curious to try that out although like you know the heartburn of it all like i'm feeling like in in this day and age i probably need to get it's some lactate yeah it's it's dangerous um but where can people find out more about the podcast and, and about all that you have going on yeah. So you can follow, you know, it's Food Friends Podcast and you can find, follow us at foodfriendspodcast.com, find us on iTunes, uh, also on Instagram. And I am Sonia Michelle Sanford on Instagram. And you can also find me at soniasanford.com. I share lots of recipes there. So if anyone is looking for great Jewish recipes, that's what I specialize in. And there's tons on my site and I'm always sharing them on Instagram as well. So yeah, feel free to connect. Awesome. All right. Well, Harry... I did tease you that I did tease you about this earlier and we're on here. Harry's a very good cook, Sonia. I want you to know in every episode I like bust his chops because he doesn't like to talk about his food prowess, but I gave him a heads up. So I'm going to ask you, Harry, did you come with a food, you know, recipe or something that you like to cook that you'd like to plug on the podcast? You know what? I'll, I'll just give a shout out to comfort food and bowls. You know, I was talking about this earlier, but we've got, first of all, we've got a rice cooker at home, which I would highly recommend everyone gets. Easiest, best thing in the world. And I'll get myself, you know, the other night for dinner, I think I just, you know, took a scoop of rice, poured some drizzle, some soy sauce over it. We had some good roasted veggies and just, I, I have a good chicken recipe, actually. It's like a Dijon thyme soy sauce, mm. you know, okay. maybe we can, uh, you know, maybe I could share that the, the actual details of it. I found it online, but, um, nice. but I just put together just like a great chicken, you know, dice it up, put it in a bowl. And then, you know, when I'm making this, it's usually, you know, I'll cook for myself and my wife and, you know, she'll always take a fork and I'll always take a spoon. I'll, I'll never understand, you know, sort of the fork approach because I'm just like, like, uh, that's why you, you guys got me interested in rice pudding because mm. anything that you can eat with a spoon in a bowl, you know, and just put together that one perfect bite. 
you know, like that that's what I could recommend. So I guess like that that's what I'll give you for Harry's Foodie Corner this week. I love it. Yeah, we should do this every episode. I feel like even if it's not a well, food movie, our, we should just talk about this like every episode. Our next upcoming Food Friends podcast episode is mentions bowls, and I can just give you a like a little teaser of it, which my like the game changer for me was frying onions or shallots mm. for bowls and which you can always keep on your counter, although they never last that long, Yum. but it's the easiest thing to do. And if you make it ahead, it just adds that like extra, like, and it's also like a little indulgence and mm-hmm. something that's very healthy, but it's not totally, at all bad right. for you, you know? Okay. Totally. So anyway, that's my, that's my bowl tip. Um, I'm, Not that you need it because your bowl sounds delicious. No, that, sound, that sounds perfect. I, I was going to say I had everything right except for that little crunch on top. So that sounds <laughs> exactly what I was looking for. So there's a there's a store here in Seattle called Awajamaya, and they often carry like a lot oh, of like yeah. Asian groceries and things like that. And one of the things I found was a sriracha sesame seeds that I put on top of on top yeah. of this. Not to put a hat on a hat, but those like add like a nice crunch to everything, and like it really does make it Instagrammable, which is obviously the goal. <laughs> besides enjoying it, Always. but also you know sharing. Um, I wanted to plug. Uh, so I, I read. I get a subscription to Flashics magazine, and so. There shout was a out. one pot. Yeah. Shout out to Fleischig's magazine. You guys are always welcome on the pod. Uh, you know, I think uh, one was like, it was like a one pot dish. So it was like chicken leg. It was chicken quarters with artichoke bottoms and then spinach and rice, but like all cooked in like a chicken broth. So you put all of that in the oven and then you come out and you have this like soggy rice with has like the chicken broth and the chicken itself cooked off. And then, the, the spinach and the artichoke, it really came out really nicely. And I've done that twice. And like, if I'm willing to commit to a recipe twice for Shabbat dinner, it like, and it works out. So I really, uh, I'll, I'll put the recipe up for that one. Cause I'm a big fan of that. So, um, that yeah, great. this was so fun. Um, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening th- this far. Um, make sure to connect with us on our social media platforms, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, uh, make sure to, you know, if you have a recipe you want to share with us, we would love to share it with our community. Email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. Make sure to like and subscribe our podcast. Give it five stars, please. Tell your friends about Jews on Film and have a good one and bon appetit. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.